0: One-third of the Bible is, is deals with the subject of Bible prophecy, so we've been looking at that specifically. What does the Bible say concerning the end times or the last days. Now the reason this is so important there on your outline one of the things that we notice about Jesus is that one of the things that he was rather scathing in his rebukes of was that the Bible had laid out how it was supposed to be when Jesus would appear the first time. But the religious leadership completely missed it because they didn't look at it, they didn't study it, and uh, sadly it, it, it uh, had a toll on the entire nation. But there on your outline Jesus says he says, "Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times?" And the idea is that it was all happening just as the Bible said, but sadly, they were missing it. So we've taken a few weeks to talk about that, and uh, what we've done as we've gone through the the subject of prophecy, we've taken broad strokes, and we've just dealt with the stuff that's very straightforward, you know, just just very very straightforward stuff. And uh, one of the things that, that I mentioned early on is that as we wrapped up this teaching on prophecy, and today's going to be the last day, I mentioned that I wanted to take a week and talk about how do you live in this, that, that final generation or in, in those last times. So this week, as I was putting this together, and I realized that just as in times, prophecy is a series unto itself. How do you live in this time is also a series. And I realized that I only have enough space for front and back on the outline. And after 40 minutes, you're walking out anyhow. So I had to cut a bunch of stuff out. So let's see how we do. But there's so, so much more. But uh, hopefully we'll get the main things that we need to talk about. So as we, we studied And again we talked about just the the big picture stuff. We began with talking about the big sign that took place. The entire world saw it but most people missed the significance. And the Bible talked about how in the last days Israel would become a nation again. It's the only nation that existed on the planet ceased to exist as a nation for almost 2,000 years. But in that last generation, and the Bible says that would be the last generation, it became a nation again. So Israel became a nation again in, in uh, 1948. So as we began that, just to show some, uh, just to put some perspective to it, one of the things that we talked about is if you take Israel in the midst of the entire Middle East, you'll see that it's this tiny little country, and it's it's uh, surrounded by a number of enemies. And the reason we had to put an arrow there is that you probably would miss it if we didn't put the arrow there. And then we decided to put in a little bit more perspective for us. We took the nation of Israel, the size of Israel, and we stuck it in a map of Florida. And one of the things that you find is that it's so small that it literally covers Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach County. And yet the entire world is focused in on this tiny little piece of real estate, and, and just as God said. And then God said that when he would bring Israel back into its homeland, it would be very unique. Put a verse there on your outline on the screen, rather. Uh, God says, when he does bring Israel back into the land, he says, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling to all the people round about. And in that day, which is very far in the future from when he said that, in that day, I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all the people and all that burden themselves with it will be cut in pieces. And the idea, this is something that God is doing. God brought the nation of Israel back into its homeland. And so you you, you never want to find yourself fighting against what God is doing. Well, we went through chapters 36 and 37 of the book of Ezekiel, where God takes two whole chapters to talk about how God would bring the nation of Israel in the last days back into its homeland, literally from the four corners of the earth, and the whole world saw it. But again, most people miss the significance. We looked at chapters 36 and 37 of Ezekiel, but if you were to go to chapter 38, I put that there on your outline. The story just continues. I want you to underline a couple of things. I'm just going to read one verse there. He says, you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land, and it will come about in the last days that I will bring you against my land. And uh, so, so there's a couple of things that we learn from that. It, it, first of all, the timeline there is the last days. And one of the things that we find is that the nation of Israel would be back in its homeland in the last days. Most of us were born after 1948, so the, the significance of Israel not being a nation for 2,000 years uh, doesn't always hit us, but it's the only nation that was a nation was not a nation for almost 2,000 years, and then becomes a nation, just as God said. There in that little verse that we underline, it says, My people Israel, last days my land. God still considers in the last days his people, or Israel, to be his people. There's a very, very unique plan that God has for the nation of Israel. And then also, we underline where it says, my land. God still considers that tiny little piece of real estate to be his land, and he's doing something with it. So you want to make sure that you're not uh, part of those who have other ideas other than what God says he's doing. So I wanted to share something as we get into this today, as we wrap up this study of, of Bible prophecy and we talk about how do we, how do we live in this time, just a few things that I think might be important. One of the things that I want to share today is something that has changed my life. It's changed my family's life. And it, I think it's also changed our, our church and been a great blessing to us. But there on your outline, one of the things that you learn as you, you travel through and you read the story of Israel Israel begins with a man, and his name is Abraham. First of all, he's called Abram. Then later on, God calls his name Abraham, changes his name. And so when God first comes to Abraham, there on your outline, he says, Now the Lord said to Abram, I will make you a great nation. And I've underlined that. And then he gives this promise and he says, I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. So God gives this unconditional promise to Abraham as his descendants become the nation of Israel. And he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And he doesn't say, as long as you behave yourself. Uh, It's just, God says, this is what I am doing. This is one of those unconditional promises. But then God says, I also want you to know, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. So Abraham's offspring become the nation of Israel. So I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. Now, if, if you know the story, there comes a time when the tiny little nation of Israel goes into the land of Egypt And as they go into the land of Egypt, it's a blessing for Israel and it's a blessing to Egypt. As Egypt blesses Israel, they are blessed. Over time, some things changed and Egypt stopped being a blessing to Israel and they became a curse to Israel, literally enslaving the the, the people of Israel. So because God has said, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you, you know the story. At a certain point, God begins to send wave after wave of plagues against Egypt because of what they had done to the Jewish people. And then the Jewish people leave, and uh, ultimately uh, many people in Egypt pass away, they die, and uh, ultimately it says that Egypt is plundered, literally their wealth is removed as God curses those who curse Israel, but then God turns around and blesses his people. So God's people come out of Egypt and then they go into the wilderness and they are wandering and they're hoping to go into the promised land. Well, there are some people in that place that that do not want the nation of Israel coming uh, into their, their area. So there is a king and his name is Balak and Balak hires a prophet and his name is Balaam. And he says, listen, I need you to do me a favor. There's this group of people, the Israelites, and they are coming into our area. I need you to stand up and prophesy against them. And uh, so he, he says, well, I can only say what God says. I'm condensing the story a little bit. Balak says "That's I don't just just prophesy. So Balaam stands up, and literally under the inspiration, you and I would say, of the Holy Spirit, he begins to speak. Now Balak, the king, is hoping that he's going to say something like, God is going to curse you for coming into our land, but, but that's not what God says. In the midst of everything that Balaam is saying, Balaam says this, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says there in your outline, blessed is everyone who blesses you, and cursed is everyone who curses you, speaking to those who would do harm to the nation of Israel. Everybody see that so far? So so once again, you see that promise, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Well, that becomes a promise for all time. Later on in the New Testament, there are those who think that God is done with the nation of Israel. We saw that, no, they, they have a very specific plan in the last days, and we looked at that a few minutes ago. But when the church is born, there are those who think that God was done at that point with the nation of Israel. Well, about 10 years after the church is born, the church is going on, there's this very interesting story in the book of Acts that we're going to begin studying here in a couple of weeks. There in your outline, it says, now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion. He's a a Roman officer of what was called the Italian Cohort a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many, and you want to underline, alms to the Jewish people. He's blessing the people, blessing Israel. And prayed to God continually. And about the ninth hour of the day he clearly saw in a vision the angel of God who had just come in and said to him Cornelius. Now you can look that up later and you can read. It's a fascinating story, the whole chapter is. But here's a man who's a Gentile. He knows nothing about Jesus, who Jesus is, never heard of Jesus in any way. But, but he sees that there's something special about the Jewish people. And so the Holy Spirit wants us to know that unique to him is he is giving alms to the Jewish people. He's giving donations to the Jewish people, trying, trying to bless them in, in a difficult time. He will be the only... He will be the only person in the New Testament that God sends an angel to, to tell him, you need to get saved, and here's where you can find that salvation. Would you say that's kind of a good blessing? He's, but the only thing that would be different from him than everybody else uh, who didn't know about who Jesus was, he was blessing the Jewish people, giving them alms. And so again, God sends an angel, only person in the New Testament. So there is something to this blessing Israel. So let, let me just make a, a couple of personal comments here. I'm not going to cry like last week, but, but a c- couple of comments. First of all, I'm, I'm a tithing fanatic. I believe in putting God first in finances. And Cheryl is too. Uh, prior to uh, being part of Calvary and, and now being part of the Southern Baptist, uh, there was a time when I was in a church and what we did in that church, this is before the internet, we would have to write our checks and then you'd bring them to, to church and then they passed pass the offering plate. And so we'd write our checks and at a certain point we'd all hold up our checks and we'd wave them. And then the pastor would, would then say something like, and it was different every week, but it was, it was always something like, Lord, we are bringing our first to you. And we know that you're going to take this first and you're going to use it. You're going to bless missionaries. You're going to see people come into your kingdom. You're going to take what we're doing. You're going to multiply this and you're going to do great things for your kingdom. And we'd say something like that. And then we'd say, because we are putting you first, we are trusting your promise that you're going to open your good storehouse to heavens. You're going to pour out so much blessing that we can't contain it. And we're excited. to. Do, and we were excited. We were excited to do that. And then we would Put that into the offering plate. Now we don't pass the plate here at 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 Calvary. We have uh, boxes in the back. everybody just notice they're right there? There's, got one on this side of the door and one in case like you're going. You're going to one. Somebody cuts you off. You just shift to the other one. Okay, we got you covered. But but I'm still that way. Whenever it comes time, you know, when the payday comes, I'm there. And and although I don't wave a check because we give online, I always say, Lord. You're going to do great things with this. You're going to take it. You're going to multiply it. And I know you're going to open your good storehouse to the heavens. And I've seen God do great things in my life because of putting him first and uh, in in the area of finances. Beyond that, there is a promise in the Bible. And I always want to put God first through what Jesus is doing in the local church. And after you're doing that, then, then I would encourage you find a way to be a blessing to Israel. Uh, one of the things that if you've ever given a donation here to Calvary, the first thing that we do is we mail out a book and it's called The Blessed Life to You, regardless of the donation. And there is a chapter in the very back of the book, a section called Having a Heart for Israel, and it goes through the verses that I just gave, talking about what happens when you begin to bless Israel. And I can tell you that Cheryl and I, we have seen God do some incredible things in our life because we put God first. God's revealed because we put him first in our finances, and then we jump on board with what he's doing, and that's being a blessing to Israel. So if I were to say, now what? What do you do in this generation that we talk about where Israel comes back into the land? I'd encourage you, put God first in your finances, but then, as you do that, I would encourage you, find a way to be a blessing to Israel. There on your outline, I put a, a, a web address. We participate as a family and as a church through a, an organization called Kol El Chabad. They're completely Jewish, they're not a Christian group, but their primary focus is, is taking care of widows and orphans in Israel. And so we partner with them and we've seen God do incredible things in our our lives. Well, um, so that would be the first thing that we talk about today. But then I ask you to turn to Matthew 24. We're going to be studying Matthew 25, but very, very quickly, you'll recall as we've looked at this chapter, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him three questions. And they say, when will these things take place? What's the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And that's There in verse 3 of chapter 24. He says he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things happen? Jesus has just told them that the temple is going to be destroyed. Took place in 70 AD. And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So they had rightly paired his coming with the end of the age. And so they say, Could you tell us about that? Jesus takes chapters 24 and 25 to answer those three questions. If you have a red letter edition Bible, you'll see that it's just Jesus answering the questions for the next two chapters. So as we went through that, we discovered as after Israel came into its homeland that it would be best described around the world, and you want to write this down, it would be a time of business as usual and an unusual time. And we highlighted there in Matthew 24 he says "For the the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah for as in those days before the flood they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and then underline and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So one of the things that we see is that before Jesus comes back, there is not this complete worldwide catastrophic economic meltdown. When Jesus comes back, they'll be buying, they'll be selling, they'll be building, they'll be planting, just normal everyday stuff will be going on. Sadly, we underline that most people will not recognize the time. They will not recognize the time. Uh, It'll be just like it was in the days of Noah. Although Noah taught it, he preached it, most people didn't recognize it. So what I would want to say to you today, and again, we've had to cut so much out, is that because it says they'll be buying, they'll be selling, marrying, giving a marriage, uh, there's still great opportunity. There's great opportunity for you to launch out, go to school, there's opportunity to start a business, you know, start a family. So you want to you just go forward. Don't, 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 stop. don't build a bunker is the idea, because uh, you know it's going to be pretty normal stuff. That's on the one hand... Now, on the other hand, at that same time, he says this. He says, you'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened, for those things must take place. But that's not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places, there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. And when we were there, and this is that same chapter sign of your coming, end of, end, you know, end, 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 of, end of time. So what we talked about when we looked at that is that he likens it to a pregnancy. There, when a woman gets pregnant, there's a very long pregnancy. She becomes increasingly uncomfortable, but at a certain point, labor kicks in. And I'm going to suggest to you that on the world scene, labor kicked in when Israel became a nation. And all of a sudden, those contractions start off far and far apart and they're not so intense, but they become closer and closer together and more and more intense. That pretty much how it happens. So you're going to see some things that are become more and more intense and closer and closer together. So as I was just looking at the news this week, in the first service, I was surprised how many people didn't know that India and Pakistan went to war this week. Did you know that? And how many of you did not know that? Well, they did. India and Pakistan went to war this week. We are still in Afghanistan. We're still in Somalia. You know, several decades. We are still in Iraq. And this week, also, I don't know if you know this, but militaries are surrounding Venezuela because of the upcoming because it's just collapsed as a as a as a country. Uh, This week you saw that North Korea, the United States, walked away from a nuclear agreement. And so you see wars and rumors of wars, and these things are becoming more and more intense and closer and closer together. There's a lot of things going on. And then it talked about how famines and pestilences and earthquakes, and we talked about when we studied that, that means natural disasters. And we, we, we looked at just in our country, just in our country. Uh, back in September, it was Hurricane Florence that came through South Carolina and North Carolina, and it didn't move for like a week. It just stayed there. Lots of destruction. and But that was followed by uh, Hurricane Michael, and uh, I shared how we are helping financially to rebuild some churches that have been completely blown away. So I was at a pastor's meeting, and one of the pastors shared how that the news has moved on, but the devastation is still there. And it's been months. But the reason the news has moved on is there's just so much stuff going on. So right after that hurricane we were fixated on the fires in California. And uh, one of my mentors had his house burned down and they described the fires coming through at 60 miles an hour. There was nothing anybody could do. Tens of thousands of homes destroyed. And uh, after that, it's been record cold storms in the north. Uh, friends saying they've never seen anything like it. It's like every week there's a whole new wave of a storm coming through. Do you know that tonight in New York, there are supposed to be again another record-breaking cold storm with snow coming through? And the, the last one just ended a few days ago. It hasn't even melted. It just just continues. So what I would say based upon that, I would say always make sure that you're prepared, not for the meltdown of the world, but for a natural disaster. You always want to be prepared for that. We live in South Florida. Hurricane season starts in a few weeks. June is you know, not that far apart. In, in our family, with 11 kids at home, we realize that, that we need to be able to shelter in place for an extended period of time so our goal is to be able to be, to have enough supplies that we don't have to leave for three months we're not quite there yet but it's just good you know the worst time to prepare for a hurricane is once they announce on the news that a hurricane's coming if you've ever been in south florida and they've announced it you know this is not the time to go but you will agree that sometimes it's better to be a year prepared in advance than a day late you know because a day late can be um not not good Well, those are just some thoughts, but I wanted to, have I put you to sleep yet? Okay. So we'll try. So I I want you to turn to Matthew 25. Now, Matthew 24, Matthew 25, Jesus is answering three questions. When will these things happen? What is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And so he takes two chapters to answer those three questions. And so I wanted to look at, as we get into chapter 25, Jesus is still answering what is the sign of your coming? What's it going to be like? And so in answering that, we come to this thing called the parable of the talents. And I'm going to pick it up in chapter 25, verse 14. And uh, knowing that he's answering three questions, what's the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And, and uh, you know, when will these things take place? Uh, keep that in mind because all of a sudden the wording here makes a lot more sense. He says, for it will be just like a man about to go on a journey. And I'm going to suggest that journey is going to be about 2000 years who called his own servants and entrusted his possessions to them. I want you to underline entrusted his possessions to them. So here you have this master and uh, he's going to be going away on a journey. And as he goes away, he's taking what belongs to him and he is entrusting it to his servants. And so you want to write down that the master believes that it all belongs to the master. All belongs to the master, but he's entrusting his servants. The word entrusted there, I won't try to pronounce. It means to give over, to give into the hands of, to give authority to, to deliver into one's hands, to take care of, to manage. So the master says, I'm I'm taking what is mine, I'm handing it to you, and I'm expecting you to do something with what I've handed to you, and, and to to take that and do something back for the master. So, verse 15, he says, to the one he gave five talents, to another two, and another uh, and, and two, and to another one each according to his own ability. And he went on a journey. Now, there in verse 15, he says he gave talents, um, a talent there on your outline and the original language is talenton. It's a weight, and you want to underline where it says it's a weight there on your outline. And it's varying in different places and times, but it's a sum of money weighing a talent. Now, what you want to know on this, and you want to write this down. A talent was a weight of money, not a coin. So there's no coin called a talent. It It was a weight. What determined its value was the weight of it Uh, Was it copper, was it silver, or was it gold? But a talent, and you want to write this down, could be up to 20 years income. So it's not something insignificant. So the master is entrusting to his servants uh, something that's very valuable and he's wanting them to do something with it. As Christianity moved from the Middle East into more of the English-speaking world, the word talent became something that we began to use and we began to use it uh, a little bit differently. So our our English word there on your outline, you want to write this down, our English word talent comes from this passage and came to be seen as life resources such as time, money, abilities, and authority. Time, money, abilities, and authority. Specifically in that context, it, it was speaking of money. But when English speaking people began to become Christians, they began to realize that the master had given them something, the talenton, and they believed that it all came from the master and they were to use it for the master's benefit. That was the idea. So they just began to use the word talent in the English language. Verse 16, it says, immediately, The one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents went and gained more, or two more, went and gained two more. So one of the things that we find here, and you want to write this down, is that two of the servants believed that if the master had entrusted it to them, then they could do something with what belonged to the master. They believe if you trust me with it, then you must think that I can do something with it. Write this down. So their understanding of the master caused them to act in faith and take action and risk for their master. They believe that that the master wanted them to do something. Now, what what I love about this is there's no guarantee, but they they were just said, here it is, we believe that you gave it to us, so we're going to go do something, and we're going to do something for the master. Verse 18, it goes on and says, but he who received one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid, and I, I want you to be sensitive here to the wording, his master's money, his master's money. Uh, it, he realized that it, it all belonged to the master. So one did not use what was entrusted to him by the master for the master's benefit, but instead did nothing with it and, and dug a hole. Jesus is answering the question, what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And this will be part of that sign. Well, verse 19, it goes on to say, now after a long time, and again, I'm suggesting about 2,000 years here, The master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents saying, master, you entrusted uh, five talents to me and see, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful. Now I've underlined good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things and I will put you, I've also underlined this in charge of many things. We want to talk about that enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received two talents came up and said, master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I've gained two more. Verse 23, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful with a few things. And he says, I will put you in charge of many things. You want to underline that. Enter into the joy of your master. So there's a couple of things here. First, uh, you want to write down. First of all, uh, Jesus calls the two faithful and good. You want to write that down. And and the reason that's important is he doesn't call them faithful and brilliant. It has nothing to do with intellect. They're just going to take what it is that God's given them to the best of their ability. They're going to use it for God's purpose. Jesus, the master, praises the faithfulness, not the amount. You want to write that down. I'm of the opinion if they went out and lost everything, but they tried something, he said, at least you tried something. At least you tried something. But then he gives the reward. And I've put the reward there there on your outline. He says, I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. So here's the picture. The master comes back at a certain point, and then they're told to enter into the joy of their master. And we've looked at some of that as we've traveled through, through prophecy. I'm suggesting that the joy of their master has to do with heaven, going to heaven. What's also interesting in that is that uh, he says, I will put you in charge of many things. I don't know if you know this, but there is no verse in your Bible ever that says that when you go to heaven, you get angel wings. It doesn't say that. It does not say that you sit on a cloud and you play a harp. Would anybody ever be excited about sitting on a cloud and playing a harp for all eternity? No one would. I'm suggesting that another entity has crept in to distort the truth about eternity so that it makes people who want to love God say I don't really want to go there if that's all it is. But what does it say? It says, I will put you in charge of many things. Whenever heaven is mentioned in the Bible, it always talks about leadership. It always talks about administration. It always talks about responsibility. It talks about creativity. Uh, Some places in Revelation says they will reign as kings. Uh, Literally, there's much to do in heaven. It has nothing to do with sitting on a cloud playing a harp. I think that's where you say, thank you, Jesus, or something like that. Verse 24, he says, now the one who had received one talent came up and said, master, you want to underline this, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away, underline afraid, and went and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. You you, you have what is yours. Um, verse 26. He says, but the master answered and said to him, you wicked, you want to underline the word wicked, you wicked, lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and I gather where I scattered no seed. A couple of things. First of all, the one who does nothing uh, is the one that the master calls wicked. You want to write that down. Just calls him wicked, wicked. Um, Also interesting. He says the one that's ultimately called wicked verse 24. He says, Wanted to receive one talent, came and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping what you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So here's my question Is that true? I mean, because I read the Bible and Jesus says things like, My burden is light and my yoke is easy. So here's what this means. This servant has a completely wrong belief system about who his master is. And that wrong belief system is causing him to act in a certain way. So I want you to write this down. The wicked servant acts on a completely wrong understanding of who the master is. He says, I knew you to be a hard man. His wrong understanding, you want to write this down, of the master caused him to operate in fear and not faith. Because I was afraid. He he wouldn't step out for his master. Uh, He wouldn't commit for his master. It was just too risky, too risky. That's because of the belief system that he had about his master. The first two servants have a belief system. If the master trusts me with this, then the master must believe I can do something and the master is going to empower me to accomplish something. The third one has a belief system, says, you're just hard. You, you, and you, you, and, and, and here, here's the thing. It's the same master. It's the same master. The only thing that's different is the belief system that the servant has about who the master really is. Does that make sense? But that belief system causes the servant to act very differently And ultimately we're going to find is going to have very, very different results. So I would hold that the reason so many people in this generation who would claim that Jesus is their master, but as far as their time, their talent, their treasure, they take 100% that he has entrusted us with And instead of using it for his purpose, we don't because we are acting on a wrong belief system as to who the master really is. And so like this one who would be the wicked servant, we act on a very wrong belief system as to who this this master is. The wrong belief system of who the master is causes the servant to operate in fear, not faith. Notice verse 27. It says, then you ought to have at least put my money in the bank, and upon my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Interesting, he he wouldn't commit to the master, even committing to putting it in the bank so it could at least draw some interest. So write this down. There's no action or investment for the master's purpose. What's also interesting in this, and remember Jesus is answering the question, what's the sign of your coming and the end of the age? He only gave excuses and blamed the master. You know, you're a hard man. I was afraid. So it's really your fault that I didn't operate in another way. Verse 26, he says, but his master answered and said to him, you wicked and Lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank and upon my arrival, I would receive my money back with the interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given and, and will have abundance. And from the one who does not have, even what he does not have will be taken away. It's very interesting to me that they all had a belief system of who the master was, and so that belief system caused them to act in a certain way. But in the end, and you want to write this down, they all received what they believed. They all received what they believed. The first two believed, if the master entrusted me, it's because he believes I could do something with it. And uh, they got more. The last one... Uh, believed that the master was hard, and ultimately he gets what he believes because he encounters the master in hardness. In the last days, as Jesus answers the question, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? One of the things that we will find is that there will be those who profess to be servants of the master, but their belief system about the master causes them to take whatever it is that the master has entrusted to them and not use it for the master. You don't want that to be you. So as we wrap up our study here of the last few weeks of prophecy, you want to evaluate and make sure that you believe in the master. Who believed that if he entrusted you with something, it's because he really believed you could do something with it. And there's a reward for that. And don't be like the one who did nothing. Find the way to participate in what it is that God is doing with your time, your talent, your treasure as we see that time coming very close. Make sense? With that, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, as we wrap this up today, we ask you, God, to illumine for us the areas in this time where we need to make some adjustments, where we we need to make some changes. And Lord, we want to go forward as those who are like the servants who believe if you've entrusted us, there's something you want to do. And so here we go. And Lord, we want to encounter you as you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in to all that you have for us. Father, I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for their love for you, their love for your word, their love for the things of you. And I pray, God, that you keep each and every one of us until we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.